0: John chapter 20 verse 1 says this. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and she went to Simon Peter and, and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb and we do not know where they have laid him. not lined with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. And the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went in, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. Let's pray this morning. Lord Jesus, we just come before you, Lord. We thank you for... Uh, the written word, because it leads us to you, Jesus, the living word. And I thank you, Jesus, that you're not dead, but you're alive. You are raised from the dead. And I thank you, Jesus, that your word tells us that it's the spirit who gives life. Your word tells us that, that flesh is of no avail. You said to those whom, to whom you preach that the words I speak to you are spirit and they are life. And this morning, we pray that that very same thing would happen here this morning, that the words that we hear from your word would be spirit, and they would be life to us. Jesus, we ask your blessing upon the teaching of the word. We ask Jesus that as the written word is held up, the living word would be exalted in our lives. And so, Lord, we just commit this time to you in Jesus' name, amen. John chapter 11 you don't have to turn there, but I'll just refer to this as we dive into 1 Corinthians chapter 15. John chapter 11 tells the story of Lazarus being raised from the dead. You know that it story? It's one of the great, great story in the Gospels. And we, we know the account of Lazarus being raised from the dead that Jesus got word that, that Lazarus had passed away and he took several days to uh, uh, arrive in the little village of Bethany. Uh, Lazarus Along with his sisters, Mary and Martha were both friends and followers of Jesus Christ. And Mary and Martha, the scripture tells us, were at home. Lazarus was in the tomb when Jesus arrived. Lazarus had been in the tomb for four days when Jesus arrived in Bethany. And when word came to the home that Jesus had arrived, the scripture tells us Martha got up and she beelined for Jesus. And. When she met up with him, she said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And she said this, but even now, if Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now, I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. And Jesus said to Martha, he said, Martha, your brother will rise again. Your brother will rise again. And she said, I know. I know he'll rise again on the last day. And then it was then at that point in their conversation that Jesus said something amazing to her from John chapter 11 verse 25 and 26. He said, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? He said to Martha. And Martha said, Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. So here's Jesus. He makes this incredible claim I am the resurrection and the life. John, the Gospel of John, records seven I am statements of Jesus. This being one of them I am the resurrection, the anastasis, the rising from the dead, the coming to life. I am the resurrection. I am the life, the absolute fullness. I am what animates every living soul. And this claim to be the resurrection and the life, in this claim to be the resurrection and life, Jesus promises both spiritual life and physical life. If you consider what he says, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. The promise of spiritual life. But he also says, And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. The promise of physical life. Jesus promised resurrection and life spiritually and physically for the one who believes in him. That's what he was saying in John chapter 11. Now in Corinth, and we, we started to dive into this last week. Questions surrounding death. Questions surrounding life after death. And in Corinth, in the Greek culture, they had... Different concepts regarding the body, regarding the soul, regarding life after death. And really they saw the body of a person and the soul of a person in their philosophy and in their thinking as two very separate and distinct things. They believed that the body was not integral to who they were. You know when the body went into the grave and it disintegrated then the soul of a person was free. And like I mentioned last week they had different concepts on what happened. You know the soul merges into deity with all the other souls. Or the the idea that the soul is reincarnated and finds another uh, body to inhabit. And there were these common concepts. And they saw in the Greek culture that the soul as something that was immortal. Whether it merged into deity or was reincarnated or immortal sorry. And the body as something that was very mortal. Now, Hebrew thinking is totally the opposite, actually. When you consider the words and the claim of Jesus, I'm the resurrection and the life. And, and Martha says, I know. I know my brother will rise again. I believe you are the son of God. And Martha believed that claim of Jesus to be the resurrection and the life. And she said, I know that on the last day, my brother will rise again. Now, in Greek culture, you know, in Corinth, where this church was situated, we know there was different things going on. People were doing different things with their bodies, you know. They were indulging them in whatever they did because they thought, well, the body doesn't matter. Or they practiced aesthetic living and tried to, you know, free themselves from physical desires. Or even the Greek culture where athletics and Olympia comes from. Uh, they idolized the body, you know. What we've often failed to mention is their athletic games were done in the nude because they idolized the body. I'm so thankful that the Canucks don't play that way. (laughs) Um, Amen. But what do the scriptures tell us about the body? Well, the first thing that comes to mind is that the body is a temple, right? Paul has said that to us in 1 Corinthians here. The body is the temple of what? The Holy Spirit. He lives and dwells in us. And we know that the reality for the Christian, for the follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, what we do in the body affects us spiritually. Now the Corinthian Christians, the the church were somehow buying into the philosophy and buying into the culture around them. And so when Paul begins to address this issue of death and life uh, and what happens when we die... He takes the Corinthians at the start of the conversation like we saw last week in verses 1 through 11 right back um, to the basics. And that is the gospel message which they had received, which they stand upon, which we are called to hold to. The fact, the facts of the gospel for the good news that is for sinners. That Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. That he was buried and that he was raised from the, the dead on the third day according to the scriptures. And... What Paul drove home and what we sought to drive home last week from those first uh, 11 verses is that resurrection and the concept of the resurrection from the dead is very central to the gospel message. It's very important. And Paul pointed us to the testimony of transformed lives. Paul in those first 11 verses points us to the testimony of the scriptures and the testimony of the eyewitnesses. And as we consider those things and think about the resurrection of Jesus and look at it, we can say it's historical, we can say it's logical, it's theological, it makes sense, it's fact. And so as we move on in this text... Paul is going to just continue driving home the absolute necessity of the resurrection of Jesus. And so let's check it out. In verse 12, we'll pick up where we left off last week. He says this. Now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? So like I said, Christ proclaimed as raised from the dead. That's the message of, of the gospel. That is the message that we preach. It's historical. It's logical. It's theological. And so Paul says the question is this. How can someone say that there is no resurrection from the dead? I mean the fact that Jesus was raised from the dead. stands in opposition to that statement. Can't say there's no resurrection from the dead. Jesus was raised from the dead. And the fact of. The resurrection of Jesus not only proves his resurrection but it also proves the principle or the theology or the understanding of the concept of resurrection. Now the Corinthians they believed in the resurrection of Jesus. They took hold of that message from the gospel. But it's just they were melding uh, their culture and their faith. The Greek philosophy with their belief in the Lord Jesus and They believed in Jesus' resurrection. They just didn't understand the concept of their own. That they also would rise from the dead. Remember that resurrection is not, when we say that that word resurrection, it's not merely life after death. It means a continuation of life after death in a glorified body. Our present bodies will be transformed. What a great thought. I hope I get, you know, a muscular, slightly skinnier version. (laughs) With more hair. You know, our present bodies will be transformed. A metamorphosis. Our bodies will be glorified. We know that about the Lord Jesus as we read the gospel accounts. He was in a glorified body. He he was recognizable. He ate food. He, He could be touched. He had a physical body, but... There were things that had been transformed about it. Physical barriers could appear and disappear or go through walls. I mean, cool stuff like that. And, you know, our bodies will be glorified. We will undergo this metamorphosis. And that just reminds me that the, the Lord's work of salvation... The, the gift of salvation that was afforded to us by Jesus Christ and by the work of the cross is totally comprehensive. That's what we need to take hold of. So we go through a passage like this. The work of the cross is complete and it, its reach extends fully over the entirety of my life. Jesus, Jesus just hasn't birthed in us new spiritual life, the blood of Christ Jesus is inexhaustible in the work of salvation, and it saves us comprehensively, not just spiritually, but physically. Jesus is redeeming the whole package. Thank goodness. So Paul says, let's consider for a moment the what if. Let's consider for a moment that there is no resurrection. What if there is no resurrection? He asks that question and he gives seven thoughts on what if. He says this, verse 13. But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. Okay, this is logical, right? Let's think about it. If there is no resurrection from the dead, then Jesus Christ has not been raised from the dead. And that would mean this. The work of the cross was not accepted by the Father. Because the resurrection, as we said last week, is the receipt for the transaction that happened on the cross. I mean, take away the resurrection, and we're saying this, that the work that happened on the cross did not satisfy the righteous demands of the Father in heaven. Paul goes on, he says, if, if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain. Your faith is in vain. See, if Christ has not been raised from the dead... The preaching this morning and the preaching that has been proclaimed to you in in the past and that you've laid hold of is devoid of truth. It's vain. I'm certainly wasting your time this morning. I'm sure you have better things to do if Christ had not been raised from the dead. Paul says your, your faith is vain. Your faith is devoid of truth. See, our faith is built upon an act of sacrifice And if the resurrection is not true, then our faith is built upon an act of sacrifice that God did not accept. And what would be the purpose of a faith like that? Paul goes on, verse 15. What if, again, we're even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ whom he did not raise if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised... Not even Christ has been raised. In other words, he says, Look, if Jesus hasn't been raised from the dead, then we're nothing more than a bunch of liars, my friends. We bought into a lie, we accepted a lie as our reality, and we're proclaiming a lie if Jesus Christ has not been raised from the dead. I I mean, if there is no such thing as the resurrection from the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And what business would we have to think that we're God's ambassadors, his representatives, because we'd have the message wrong? He goes on, verse 17. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. I mean, not only would your faith be devoid of truth, but it's also devoid of force. That means it's a powerless, empty, worthless faith. Powerless to save. We bought into a lie. We would still be in our sins. We would still be in slavery to sin. Still mastered by sin. Still separated from God because of sin. You know, I think about this letter to the First Corinthians and you know, all the way throughout this series, the theme has been this, is that Paul has pointed the church to the cross as the solution for every issue. But if there's no resurrection, the cross is of no effect. They'll And he says in verse 18, then those who have fallen asleep, that's those who have passed away, in Christ have perished. If in Christ... If in Christ we have hope in this life only we are of all people most to be pitied you know without the resurrection it means those who have passed away are dead they they're dead entirely man they're put away they are destroyed they are rendered useless there is no hope What is Christian hope without the resurrection? And Paul says, of all people, we should be pitied. You know, you think about that. What a miserable thought, right? I, just th- I go through these questions and it's, it's miserable to me. It feels like, and I hope it's happening for you, it feels like it's sucking the life out of me as I think about the idea that Jesus is not raised from the dead. We should be pitied. We would be miserable people. You know, if I just stop and think, man, if this what-if question is true, my faith will shrivel up like a plant in the desert. And as Paul makes these statements and he asks this question, it sh- this, qu- this what-if questions, it should drive home something very, very important to us. And it's this. The resurrection of Jesus Christ matters. The resurrection of Jesus three days after he was placed in that tomb matters. It matters for the message of the gospel. It matters to the point that I'm willing to say this, that you you cannot deny the physical resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and claim to be a Christian. You can't. You cannot deny it and claim to be a Christian because your gospel is of no power to save you. But I'm so happy for this, you know. So I think about it. I'm happy for the testimony of transformed lives. I'm happy and take hold of the testimony of the scriptures. I'm happy for the testimony of the eyewitnesses. Peter and James and Paul and the 500 and the 12 and the apostles. I'm so happy that the resurrection of Jesus Christ is historical and it's logical and it's theological and that it's a fact. I'm so glad that we have received the gospel, that we stand upon it, that we uh, hold to it. I'm so happy for the hope of the resurrection of Jesus Christ because it matters for our faith. And Paul goes on to say that. He says this, but in fact, forget the what if question. Let's talk facts now, he says. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has also come the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ, so also in Christ shall all be made alive, but each in his own order. Christ the firstfruits, then it is coming those who belong to Christ. Wow, that's an awesome section of scripture. Paul says this, the fact is this, Christ has been raised from the dead. He's the first fruits uh, of those who have fallen asleep. You know, isn't it just nice to stick to facts rather than hypotheticals? Sometimes I don't like that. Let's stick to the facts. Christ has been raised from the dead. In uh, Hebrew tradition and in their feasts and their celebrations... They had the feast of first fruits, and the feast of first fruits fell at a very important time. Paul tells us that Jesus is the first fruits of the resurrection. And the calendar looked like this Friday, they celebrated Passover, Saturday was a Sabbath, and Sunday was the first day, the day of the feast of first fruits, the first day of the week. And on that day, Uh, The children of Israel, when they would celebrate the feast of first first fruits, the the first sheaf of grain that was taken and harvested from the field would be brought to the house of the Lord. And it would be given to the priest, and the priest would take that uh, sheaf of grain and he would wave it before the Lord. And it was a sign of thanksgiving. It was a sign of saying, thank you God, the first fruits are here, and there's a harvest coming. In fact, when was the harvest in their calendar? It was 50 days later at Pentecost. That's when the full harvest would come in. And uh, the priest would take it and he would wave it before the Lord and it was this, this act of thanksgiving. God, you've, you're supplying. It was this, uh, you know, act of, of worship knowing that, that God was the provider. And the sheaf was waved before the Lord but ultimately the, ultimately the greatest thing that it symbolized was this. That there's more to come, that there's more of a harvest to come. It was the first fruits. And Jesus Christ, Paul says, is the first fruits of the resurrection. Of course, crucified on Passover, in the tomb for three days over Sabbath, and on Sunday morning, the the day of the feast of first fruits, he was raised from the dead. He came back from the dead, resurrected in a glorified body. And he is the first fruits of the resurrection. The scripture tell us, of course, that there's, there's other people who were raised from the dead in the accounts of scriptures. Of the scriptures. There's, of course, Lazarus, who we mentioned earlier. There's uh, Jairus' daughter. Uh, I think of Dorcas in the, new te- uh, in the book of Acts. That name always makes me want to snicker. Dorcas. That's my 13-year-old boy tucked away inside there. Um uh, <laughs> the uh, the son of the widow from the city of the town of Nain Matthew 18 tells us that at Jesus crucifixion when uh, the curtain of the the veil in the temple was torn in two that that there was a great earthquake and many tombs opened and righteous people came up out of the graves and they they testified to Jesus Christ and And so the scriptures tell us of many people who were raised from the dead, but they were not raised in the same sense that Jesus Christ was resurrected from the dead. It's more like a better word might be that they were resuscitated. Okay, they were raised to life in the body that they had died in and they eventually died again. Lazarus didn't live eternally. None of these folks lived eternally in, in that body. They eventually died again, but Jesus was resurrected from the dead uh, in his physical body and yet glorified. He's the only one to have ever come back from the dead in a glorified body. And he's the first fruits, Paul says. He is uh, the first fruits in the sense that there is many more to come that will follow in his pattern. In fact, Paul goes on and he says this. For as by a man came death. By a man has also come the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all shall be made alive. So by, by a man came death. And by a man came the resurrection from the dead. You know, I, I was thinking about this. I, I never forget chatting with my, with my brother when he was is new in law enforcement and working as a police officer. Um, w- one of his... I think it's okay to tell this. One of his first calls, you know, like first week or two on the job, he got got, uh, sent to a call where the husband had taken his life and he'd taken uh, his wife's life and their 12 or 13-year-old daughter had come home to find the scene. And my brother's like, rookie, like new, new, new on the job. And he had to sit for six hours with this 12-year-old girl in his cruiser and he was he was so shook up and as we were chatting he just said death is not natural it it's not god's plan there's nothing pretty about it it's not the design of god there there's nothing right about it that's heavy i mean Death is heavy. I I remember my first exposure to death, and I I was a little bit older. My great-grandma passed away. Great-grandma Pinkerton. How's that for her last name? Pinkerton, I love that one. And, And I was 13 or so, and I remember the day of her funeral. I was actually staying out in the valley at my grandpa and grandma's place, and I'd been just hanging out for a week. And the day of the funeral came, and my grandpa came outside. I was outside doing something in his yard. And he said, we got the funeral today. You want to go? And it was just him and I, and I said, I don't want to go. And he just so graciously said, that's okay. You can stay behind today. And he left me, and he, he went off. and And, you know, it wasn't because I... I didn't love my grandma, you know, my great-grandma. I got all these wonderful memories as I think back. And uh, it was just because I didn't know how to deal with death. When Lisa and I were dating for just over a year, her, her dad passed away from cancer. You know, I, th- I mentioned this before. Fifteen years ago, we had our niece killed by a drunk driver in Abbotsford, Tragic. Devastated uh, my brother in law and, and his family. And I mean, I, I know we all have stories of death. If we just went around the room, ugh, son of us, uh, it's devastated us. We don't know how to deal with our grief and our sense of loss. And, and it's because we're not wired for it, it's not natural. It's not God's plan. It's not his design. We have to know that. Death is not God's design. Death is the result of sin. It is the fruit of sin. And Paul tells us that death came by one man. It it came by one man and every person, every member of humanity after, after, Adam has been born into this cycle, and into this experience of death. And I think about the words of Jesus uh, to Martha, who said, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. And he asked that question, do you believe this? And as I think about the words of Jesus, I am the resurrection and the life. I mean, hope rings forth from those words. When you look at death, but you consider the words of Jesus, there is hope in the words of Jesus. There's no hope in death, but there's hope in the words of Jesus Christ. And all the way back to the Genesis account, if we consider Adam and his sin and the repercussions of his decision... It's reached into every one of our lives. It's touched every one of our lives. And it's touched the life of every person who has ever been born. Sin entered the human, death entered the human race through the act of one man. But we learned something incredible in the gospel that so too forgiveness and grace is made available to all humanity through the act of one man, the Lord Jesus Christ. And we suffer for someone else's sin. We suffer for someone else's sin. But we can also benefit from someone else's sacrifice. But there's a choice. There's a choice in the whole situation. It's that question of Jesus. Do you believe? Do you believe this? I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever... Believes in me though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? And in life, you'll follow the first Adam or you'll follow the last Adam. The first Adam or Jesus Christ who is called the last Adam. You'll follow one or the other. You know, it's been said that only, I mean, think about it, only two men have ever been born alive. The first Adam and the last Adam. They're the only two people ever born alive. Every other person is born dead. That's what the scripture says. And by dead, I mean spiritually. They're alive physically, but they are spiritually dead. And it's because of the act of Adam. Death has affected all of us, but Adam, the scripture says, wasn't created that way. Like I said, death is not God's design. Adam wasn't created with that wired into him. Genesis chapter 1. If you would turn with me to Genesis chapter 1 this morning. It says in chapter 1 verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens. And if you can't find that, it's the first page in your Bible. <laughs> uh, sorry. Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the deep. A few weeks ago, we looked at this verse. And we talked about the face-to-face relationship of the Spirit and the Word. But it says here that in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The word uh, for created is bara. God created the heavens and the earth. And the word bara means this. It means to create out of nothing. It's only actually used a few times in the creation account and I'm going to point them out here so you might want to circle them. That word created. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That means out of nothing, God uh, spoke the heavens and the earth into existence. We accept that by faith. We believe that. God made the heavens and the earth. Once the Lord made the heavens and the earth and the creation account continues and the various days of creation are continued and you read through here in Genesis chapter 1 God is forming various parts of his creation. The night and the day and the light to separate them. The expanse of the sky. It says that he, he gathered the waters into certain places and he caused the dry ground to appear and he set lights in the expanse of the sky and he brought forth vegetation from the earth and he brought forth fruit bearing trees to provide food and in the first four days of creation the Lord was not creating in the same way that we read in verse 1. Barah. But he was taking his creation and he was forming it. He was melding it. He was shaping it. He was designing it. And he was working from the mold that he had spoken into existence on that first day. And he brought forth all of these things. And in those first four days, he was not creating in the bara sense of creation, but fashioning and forming. Plants were formed. You know, trees were formed. The ocean was gathered. They were things that were already that were brought into existence from that which was spoken by the original words of God. And with those same elements, he formed, you know, the various plant life and things. And it's not until you come to the fifth day of creation that God again speaks Barah. And he create he, he takes the creatures of the sea, the great creatures of the sea, it says, and He forms them. And then he speaks. You'll see the word, in ver- I believe it's in verse 21. Yeah, verse 21. So God created, Barah, the great sea creatures and every living creature that moves with which the waters swarm according to their kinds and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. From Genesis 1-1 till verse 21 God does not speak that word bara again. And when he forms the animals that are coming to life, he gives them an the ability to breathe. You know, the fish get gills. The, the mammals have ability to process oxygen and have lungs and blood flowing through them and a nervous system and a brain. And the word bara communicates that God gave them consciousness. Consciousness. That was something that, exist that that he had to speak into existence out of nothing. And he made the animals awake and aware of their surroundings. And we know this, I mean, because the Bible teaches it, culture and the world might try to explain this away, but there's a difference between animal life and plant life. And it's consciousness. And God has given animal life consciousness. And then in the creation account, God does not use the word bara, create from nothing, again until Genesis chapter 1 verse 27. You'll see it there in verse 27. You could circle the word created. It says this, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God he created him. Male and female he created them. And God blessed them. Barah again appears here in in this word creation when God speaks of making man in his own image. God God takes the same basic elements of life, the same elements that are in plants and in animals. But this time he fashions and forms a man in his own image and then... uh, he gives man consciousness that he gave to the animals but then as he speaks bara he gives man something that the animals do not have. He makes Adam a living spirit. A a, a person with a soul And he creates the spirit of man. Genesis chapter 2 verse 7 even says that God breathed into the nostrils of Adam. The breath of life. That's not just speaking of consciousness. But it's speaking of making him a living creature. A living spirit. More More than an animal. The Hebrew word is actually soul. Nefesh. He's a living breathing soul. Made in the image of God. Different from the animals. The animals had consciousness. They had the breath of life. But they did not have a living spirit. And God had to speak into existence. The living spirit to create it. Is a better word than speak into existence. He created it. And as high as the animals are above plant life. So Adam and Eve are above the animal kingdom in their original state. They are the the height of God's creation. Man made in the image of God. And Adam in his original state, I mean we consider Adam in his original state. He's, he's clothed in light, he's clothed in righteousness, he's without sin, he's not going to die physically. He is not dead spiritually. He's fully alive unto God spiritually. And we don't even we don't even understand what that means. I mean he had open access to God. Uh, he, he walked with God. You know, he probably, I don't know how it all worked, okay, but he moved from like earth to heaven and he had open access with God. Adam was fully alive spiritually. And when he sinned, when he made that choice to rebel against God, what happened? He knew he was naked. His light went out. He died spiritually. He died and Adam has passed to us death. Physically, he has passed to de- us to uh, death. Spiritually, you know, we're born into this world, but and we live in this world, but we're we're subject to death, as we've all experienced, and as all we all will experience. We're subject to sickness and disease. So tired of hearing about my sick friends. Not tired about hearing about my friends, but I just don't want to hear about any more sick friends. I, I want God to work in that. And we are subject to death. And what we need, the New Testament says, and what Jesus proclaimed is this, is that we must be born again. We must be born again. The scripture, you know, I think about the scripture, the scripture, you know, this whole evolutionary thing, I just I just freaking laugh at it. It's just so stupid. Because... What the Bible teaches is not evolution, but de-evolution. I mean, go to Romans chapter 1 and spend some time studying that, and you'll find out that Adam went backwards, man. That man goes backwards. He's not evolving and getting better. It's as he gives himself to sin, he degenerates. He, uh, he becomes more animal-like. That's why the world says, oh, we're just like animals. Of course you are, because you're dead spiritually, There is no difference between a dead man and an animal. When you think about it, except that he's made in the image of God and he has the the opportunity to be born again, to come to life. And the scripture doesn't teach evolution, it teaches de-evolution. The further a man moves from God, the more animalistic he becomes. I mean, look around the world and and watch some of the things that are happening and we talk about death and tragedy and the way people are hurting one another in the world Adam has passed to us death but Jesus has passed to us life see the the first Adam was a living being but the second Adam we're going to look closer at this next week the second Adam says further in this chapter of 1 Corinthians 15 became a life giving spirit. A life giving spirit. Jesus has the ability to give life. Jesus imparts life. Jesus imparts spiritual life but it hinges on this fact. The very fact that Paul started with at the chapter at the beginning of chapter 15 he said of the Corinthians you received him. Jesus imparts life but Jesus and his message must be received. It must be uh, taken into my heart. It, it must move from being s- some intellectual concepts and travel 18 inches down to my heart and be taken hold of in the heart. Remember the words of Jesus to Martha? Do you believe this? Yes, Lord, she said. I believe you're the son of God. And the message, Jesus imparts spiritual life, but he must be received. Uh, and The message of the gospel must be received and when it is received, we experience the reality of new birth. It's real. If you've been born again, you know that it's real. I'm not talking about some mythological thing or some just philosophy like the Greeks in regards to what they believed about. It's real. If you've invited Jesus Christ into your heart and life, you've experienced the reality of that. He's transforming you and changing you and you, you know what it's like to have a heart at peace like we learned about yesterday and to have a mind at peace and to know the reality that your sins are forgiven and to be filled with hope and to be born again. To have the word of God come off, your, off the page. I'm going to invite you to turn with me to John chapter 20 for a minute where we started this morning. The first Adam became a living being. But Paul says the last Adam became a life-giving spirit. Let's pick up John chapter 20 verse 19. The day of first fruits when Jesus was raised from the dead. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, Jesus, the first fruits. The doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews Jesus came and he stood among them and said peace be with you. How did he get in there? The doors were locked. His glorified resurrected body not subject to physical barriers like doors and walls. He appeared They were filled with fear, and he said to them, Peace be among you, and verse peace be with you, verse 20. And when he said this, he showed them his hands and his side. They could recognize him. The disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. And Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you, and as the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. And now look at this. Read this, verse 22. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit the first Adam passed to us death the first Adam was a living being but Jesus Christ passed to us life Jesus Christ is the last Adam and he is a life giving spirit see that very thing he did for his disciples he breathed on them and they received the spirit and they were brought to life they were brought to life what great hope, what a great savior we have. The resurrection from the dead and the promise is not just spiritual as you think about this. He breathed on them and he breathed life into them and they were born again. It's not just spiritual, but it is physical. Just as I have been born again spiritually speaking, so I will be glorified physically at the resurrection of the dead. Check it out verse 23 of 1 Corinthians chapter 15. I'll take you back there. I didn't give you the warning. Verse 23. It says this. But each in his own order. Christ the first fruits. Then it is coming. Those who belong to Christ. And so we see this. There's order to God's plan for resurrection. It's a military term. We looked a few weeks back at, at, at the order that is in the church in regards to spiritual gifts. God is a God of order, and there is order in his plan for resurrection. And of course, you know, if we think about the order, it doesn't make sense that we would be resurrected from the dead before Jesus because he's the first fruits. He comes first, and we will follow in the same pattern. In John chapter 5, you could maybe go home and check it out later today. Jesus speaks about the authority of the Son of Man, speaking of himself. And he says that there is a day coming when the dead will hear his voice, and and in the tombs, those who are in the tombs, get this, they're dead, they will hear his voice, and they will come out of the tombs. And Jesus says this at the end of John chapter 5, those who have done good to the resurrection of life, and those who have done evil to... uh, the resurrection of judgment. The good to the resurrection of life, which is speaking of those who are righteous and dead, and the evil to the resurrection of judgment, speaking of those who are unrighteous. And those who are um, raised in the resurrection of life will spend an eternity uh, with the Lord. Those raised in the resurrection of judgment will also experience a resurrection of body, but they're going to be, as the scripture says, eternally tormented and continue in their experience of spiritual death and separation from God. You know, one of the concepts I think that we miss sometimes in scripture surrounding the word death is that death does not mean cease to exist. Death means separation from life. It doesn't mean ceasing to exist. It simply means separation from life. Did Adam cease to exist when he sinned? No. Adam was separated from life. Death entered his physical frame. He began to age. Gravity set in. Lost his hair. He died. (laughs) Um, But he was separated. Death, he also experienced spiritual death. He was separated from the life uh, of the spirit that God had given him. And so Jesus says in John chapter 5, there's two resurrections, not events, but they're they're more like categories, a resurrection to life and a resurrection to judgment. And either you'll be a part of the first resurrection to life or you'll be a part of the the second resurrection to damnation. And the difference between them is the question of Jesus. Do you believe this? I am the resurrection and the life. The choice that he puts uh, in our hands And when you think about the resurrection, resurrection to life, resurrection to judgment, there seems to be various parts of the resurrection revealed in scripture. It's not a general resurrection. It's not a uh, a one-time thing. It's more like categories. And there are those who are going to be part of the resurrection when Jesus comes in the air. At the rapture, the church will be caught up, removed, from the earth and we know that at that point in time will begin on earth a a period a seven year period of tribulation book of revelation of course speaks about that and it talks about two men who are going to come in the pattern of Elijah and Moses and they will be killed at the middle point of the tribulation the scripture says that their bodies will lie in the streets of Jerusalem and it'll be a worldwide event. Everyone will know about it in the entire world. And then after a number of days, I forget how many it is, God will raise them from the dead. They will be resurrected and they won't be able to be killed. At the end of uh, the seven-year tribulation when Jesus Christ physically comes to earth and he descends from heaven and he establishes his kingdom on earth it's the the scripture tells us that Jesus will set up a a thousand year reign the millennial reign we call it where he'll rule in Jerusalem and he will rule over the world and uh, the book of Revelation tells us that it's at that time that the Old Testament saints those who were prior to the cross will be raised from the dead when Jesus physically uh, touches the earth How many of you guys have been to Jerusalem? You remember that about the Mount of Olives? That's the thing about the Mount of Olives. You go there and you stand at the top of Mount of Olives and it's a fascinating place because the entire mountain is covered with tombs. Remember? It's covered with tombs. You can come with us in February. And the mountain is covered in tombs. It's the place, of course, where Jesus stood with his disciples and they went like this and they watched him ascend into heaven. And the angels appeared and they said, you see how he left? He's going to come back in the same way. His feet will descend and they will touch the Mount of Olives. And Zechariah tells us all sorts of incredible stuff that when his feet touch, the mountain will be split and there'll be a river of life and all this crazy stuff. But it also, sa- we, re- we read that at the resurrection of life, the Old Testament saints will be raised from the dead. And so the, the Jewish people, the Hebrew people have this belief the Messiah will come and he will touch the Mount of Olives. And so guess where they want to be buried? Mount of Olives. They want to be among the first to rise from the dead. That's why the whole Mount of Olives is covered with tombs. That's the reason. Because they know the Messiah is coming to that place. And they will be resurrected from the dead. And when that happens, Jesus will reign on the earth for a thousand years. It's an interesting period of time in the scripture. And then at the end of the thousand years, we know that there'll, there'll be a... Satan will be set free again. There'll be a rebellion against God and Jesus will speak and he will at that time uh, gather the unrighteous dead. There will be a resurrection unto judgment, the the great white throne. And those who chose to stand before God on the basis of their own worth, on the basis of their own merit, rather than on by the blood and righteousness of Jesus Christ will then at that time come before the throne of God and they'll hold out their righteous works and it will prove to be filth and rags. There's a resurrection of life and a resurrection to judgment. And then verse 24 comes, we're going to just rattle through this last little part. I'll try to. You guys Good? Sweet, it's exciting stuff. I told you it's an awesome chapter. Praise the Lord. Verse 24, then comes the end. When he delivers the kingdom to God. This is after the thousand years. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God, to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. What a great hope we have. Death itself will be destroyed. Verse 27 goes on. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he is accepted who put all things in subjection under him. What does that mean? It's a little bit wordy the way it is there in that ESV. It means Everything except the Father will be in subjection to Jesus. The Father put all things in subjection to Jesus and everything will come into subjection to Jesus except the Father. The Father is the exception. Jesus is going to rule over everything and he does. He sits at the right hand of the Father in heaven. We just don't see it yet, you know. Jesus is not bound by time. He's in time outside of Time and eternity and space. And we're bound to the clock. We're bound to the calendar. We just don't see it yet. And when he has accomplished everything, he will subdue all things and he will bring them into their proper order. Death will be abolished and it will cease and the Father will be glorified. Verse 28. When all things are subjected to him, Then the Son Himself will also be subjected to Him who put all things in subjection under Him, that God may be all in all. I mean, the Trinity will be the Trinity. Jesus will remain in that second place, uh, the second person of the Trinity. Not not lesser in in His nature or His inherent value, but In his heart to serve. He he will stay in that place of subjection to the father. And the father will be glorified. God will be glorified in all things. Now here comes the wrench. Ready? Paul's always got one. He's going to toss it in. Verse 29. Otherwise. What do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? Huh? If the dead are not raised at all. Why are people baptized on their behalf? Um. There are over 200 interpretations of that verse. I'm going to give you the right one this morning. <laughs> <laughs> Just kidding. Uh, I, I wish I had the right one for you. I don't know. I'll, I'll, give, you, I'll, I'll give you three, okay? Three, three that I kind of like. Of course, the Bible doesn't teach baptism of the dead. Um, we know that there are religious groups who practice it. Uh, that's why the Mormons are so into genealogies. You know that, right? That's why the Mormons are into genealogies because they're going back throughout all of time and history and they're researching and then they're baptizing everybody in the name of the Mormon church and they make that claim, you know. Everybody's a Mormon. Everybody's dead is Mormon, you know. They just make that claim. So that's why they're into the genealogies and they're all into the baptism of the dead. I, I have a friend uh, who's a believer come out of the Mormon church, was a part of this church for a period of time. And uh, he says, when I was a Mormon, I was baptized for hundreds of dead people. Hundreds. I said, really? He says, yep. They just say the name and down you go and up you come. And they claim them as their own. Bible does not teach baptism of the dead for the dead. There were cultish practices in the city of Corinth. And so this is one of the suggestions in in interpreting, interpreting this verse, that some religious groups in Corinth taught that you know, if you died and you weren't baptized, then you're lost forever. And the Corinthians were maybe somehow messed up in this. So they believed, oh, my, my loved one passed away. They didn't get baptized. They're going to be lost forever. I need to be baptized in their stead. Um, others suggest just this simply means, um, it says, otherwise, Verse 29, I'll read it to you again, and then I'll say this one. Otherwise, what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? If the dead are not raised, why are people baptized on their behalf? Others just say this. Why be baptized in the name of a dead man if Jesus Christ is not raised from the dead? You're being baptized on behalf of the dead if you're practicing baptism and Jesus isn't raised from the dead. So they say maybe that's the interpretation. Another one, uh, another interpretation, a common one is is that... um, Maybe I'm inspired by someone who passed away in the Lord. You know, a grandfather or someone who meant a lot to me and I saw their faith and I admired them and then they passed away and then I make a decision. I'm going to follow Jesus Christ. They're gone and now it's my turn to make a decision to follow Jesus and I choose to get baptized. I'm kind of being baptized on behalf of the dead because I'm inspired by someone who's gone. So, yeah, good luck with that. There's 200. There's that's there's 190 more seven, 97 of So we're going to leave about. No, just kidding. We won't go through all this. Um, verse 30. I'll leave you to think about it. You can give me your opinion. You can tell your neighbor. Verse 30. Why are we in danger? Paul goes on. If the bapt- If the dead aren't If the dead If the dead aren't raised, why are we in danger every hour? Verse 31. I protest to you, brothers, by my pride in you which I have in Christ our Lord, I die every day. What do I gain if humanly speaking I fought with beasts in Ephesus if the dead are not raised? Let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. Paul says, look, I mean, we know the story of Paul, right? We could just stoned, beaten, you know, lowered by a rope out of a community, imprisoned for years. Uh, Forty men signing their own death pack to kill him. Uh, Paul says why would I go through all this? Are you kidding me? Why would I do this to myself if Jesus Christ has not been raised from the dead? If there is no resurrection. He talks here about a danger that we don't even know about that he fought wild beasts in Ephesus. Don't know exactly what that means. Does he? Was he like thrown into one of the great theaters and So people could watch the Christians get eaten by animals. And somehow Paul would say. I mean we don't know what the story is here. But he says it fought beasts at Ephesus. Maybe he's speaking figuratively of the. He caused a lot of. The gospel caused a lot of problems in the city of Ephesus. It turned a lot of things upside down. People lost their jobs. Because they were so into selling idols. uh, The god of Artemis." when the gospel was preached, the whole industry went down the tubes and all these silversmiths were out of jobs so they all want to kill Paul there too. You know, so maybe he's talking about those beasts at Ephesus. But whatever it is, Paul faced a lot of danger and he says, why would I put myself through this? If the resurrection of the dead is not real, let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. Verse 33, do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. Wake up from your drunken stupor as is right and do not go on sinning for some have no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame. We'll wrap up on these verses this morning. Paul says this. Wake up. Remember in the New Testament, the concept is when a believer passes away, they don't die. They go to sleep because there's a resurrection that's going to happen. And Paul says, wake up. Don't be asleep already in regards to your faith. Death hasn't come yet and you should not live like people who are dead in their sin. Live with a sense of accountability. We're, we're going to stand before God. There is going to be a resurrection. We're going to stand before God. And how we live matters. How I live in this physical body affects me spiritually. How I live in this physical body affects, affects eternity. It has an effect on my children and on my neighbors and on my testimony. How I live in this physical body has an effect on me and whether there's life in my relationship and my walk with Jesus or whether I'm putting it to sleep and causing it to be dead. How I live in this body matters. The scripture says there's rewards in eternity. Not salvation. Salvation's a gift. But there are rewards that will be handed out in eternity on the basis of the good and on the basis of how we've lived. And so Paul says this separate yourselves from those who don't believe in the resurrection. Don't hang out with them. Be careful the friends that you choose. You know, I would say this gravitate towards godly men and women. Gravitate towards godly people. You know, it's the old saying, and he basically says it here, garbage in, garbage out. You become like those you hang out with. And so Paul says, don't be deceived. Ba- bad company ruins good morals. Wake up from your drunken stupor, as is right, and do not go on sinning. You become like those you hang out with. And I, I just think about this whole section of Scripture and we're going to go on ah, next week. Paul's not done with this whole idea of resurrection. And the hope that we, the hope that is made available to us through the Lord Jesus Christ. And, you know, for some of you this morning, maybe you need to move on from merely believing in God. Oh yeah, I believe in God and I believe in the message of the gospel and I believe in Uh, the cross, and I believe in the death and burial, and I believe in the resurrection of Jesus. I believe those things, but you need to move from just believing to actually trusting God with your life. By saying, Jesus, I surrender to you. You are the resurrection and the life. I don't want to live like a dead man. Wake me up from the drunken stupor, though I believe. Wake me up. And take me from that place of merely believing in God to trusting Jesus Christ as my personal Savior. Laying hold of it. And so this morning as the worship team comes, I'm going to invite you just to stand with me.